welcome to First Incision, the podcast about preparing for the General Surgery Fellowship exam. I'm your host, Amanda Nikolic. Let's get started with our team timeout. Our patient today is the endocrine module from the General Surgical Curriculum, and the operation or topic we'll be covering today is parathyroids, specifically talking about calcium homeostasis and hyperparathyroidism. So to start off, let's talk about calcium and calcium homeostasis and all of the different organs and systems that are involved in keeping our calcium levels in the normal range. Essentially, the parathyroid glands are the most important component of calcium homeostasis. I've talked a little bit about the anatomy and embryology of the parathyroid glands a few episodes ago in our introduction to endocrine. So the parathyroid glands release parathyroid hormone in response to a low serum calcium level. Once parathyroid hormone is released, it acts on the bones and the kidneys in order to increase the level of calcium in the blood. In terms of the bones, it leads to an increase in the action of osteoclasts, which leads to bone reabsorption, which releases calcium and phosphate into the serum. In terms of its action on the kidneys, it leads to increased reabsorption of calcium from the distal convoluted tubules and also excretion of phosphate. It also leads to an increase in the formation of 1-alpha-hydroxylase, and this then goes and acts on the pathway of activating vitamin D. So if we talk about vitamin D, we get vitamin D from our food and also because of sunlight on our skin. This first form of vitamin D is called cholecalciferol. And cholecalciferol goes to the liver where it is changed into 25 hydroxyvitamin D3 by 25 hydroxylase in the liver. This 25-hydroxyvitamin D3 then goes to the kidney, where this 1-alpha-hydroxylase, which is upregulated by parathyroid hormone, changes it into 1,25-dihydroxyvitamin D3, also known as calcitriol, which is the active form of vitamin D. And once vitamin D is activated, it then goes and acts on the gastrointestinal tract to increase the absorption of calcium and phosphorus from the gastrointestinal tract. So these three mechanisms, increase calcium reabsorption from bone, increase calcium reabsorption in the distal convoluted tubules in the kidneys, and increased activation of vitamin D into its active form, leading to increased reabsorption of calcium in the gastrointestinal tract, all work to increase the serum levels of calcium. And then because it's endocrine, there's obviously a feedback mechanism where the increased levels of calcium feed back to the parathyroid glands and reduce the production of parathyroid hormone. Before we start talking about hyperparathyroidism, I wanted to spend a bit of time talking about hypercalcemia. 
Hypercalcemia has come up in previous written questions, so I think it's important to go through what other causes of high calcium can be and how you might assess and work up a patient presenting with a high calcium. The normal calcium level is between 2.12 and 2.62 millimoles per litre. There's some definitions of mild, moderate and severe hypercalcemia. Mild is 2.62 to 3, moderate is 3 to 3.5, and severe is more than 3.5. They also talk about a hypercalcemic crisis being more than 3.75 millimoles a litre, and this has a high risk of dehydration, arrhythmias, and even death. These really high levels of calcium are not commonly seen in hyperparathyroidism and are more associated with some other conditions which we'll be going into. So in terms of the causes of hypercalcemia, I split it up into redistributive, increased intake, or reduced output. So the first group is the redistributive, and this group includes what makes up about 90% of the causes of hypercalcemia, which is hyperparathyroidism and malignancy-associated hypercalcemia. And just briefly, there's a few different mechanisms by which malignancy can increase the calcium levels in the blood. The first of these is that some tumors release a substance called parathyroid hormone-related protein, and this acts like parathyroid hormone and acts through those mechanisms we just talked about to increase calcium levels. And some solid tumors of the lung, head and neck, renal cell carcinomas, lymphomas, and leukemias can do this. The other way they can do it is by releasing calcitriol, so that activated form of vitamin D. And Hodgkin's lymphoma is a common one that will do this. And then the other one is that if you have lytic bone metastases, this leads to reabsorption of calcium and phosphate from the bones. And this is common in diseases such as multiple myeloma, breast cancer, renal cell carcinoma, thyroid cancers, and lung cancer metastases. Some other redistributive causes of hypercalcemia include sarcoidosis or granulomatous disease um, and tuberculosis, which all activate vitamin D via the macrophages in the granulomas. Also adrenal insufficiency, endocrine disorders such as thyrotoxicosis, acromegaly and pheochromocytomas, and also prolonged immobilization. In terms of increased intake, patients that are on high doses of calcium, vitamin D and vitamin A replacement, as well as patients that are on TPN can have high calcium. And then the last group of causes of hypercalcemia is things that reduce the output or excretion of calcium. So some drugs such as thiazide diuretics and lithium can cause hypercalcemia as well as familial hypocalcuric hypercalcemia, which we'll talk about a bit more when we talk about the workup of hyperparathyroidism. But this is a condition where there's a germline mutation in the calcium-sensing receptor, which means that patients don't excrete calcium in their urine. So 
So how do patients with high calcium levels present clinically? So majority of patients may be asymptomatic, and this can present as just an incidental finding on a blood test. The typical mnemonic or phrase that we learn as medical students for symptoms of hypercalcemia are stones, bones, abdominal moans, and psychic groans. So for stones, they're talking about renal stones, so nephrolithiasis, and in really severe cases, you can get nephrocalcinosis. Bones means osteopenia, osteoporosis, and pathological fractures. Abdominal moans relates to abdominal symptoms such as constipation, vomiting, abdominal pain, nausea. Patients can also get peptic ulcers and develop pancreatitis if the calcium levels are very high. And psychic groans relates to neurocognitive symptoms such as fatigue and malaise, depression, memory loss, weakness, and lethargy. In cases of very severe hypercalcemia, the high levels of calcium can inhibit neuromuscular and myocardial depolarization. So it can lead to muscle weakness, arrhythmias, confusion, and even comas. And there's a condition called calciphylaxis, which is a serious but luckily uncommon disease where calcium can accumulate in the small blood vessels of the fat and skin. And this can cause blood clots and painful ulceration of the skin and secondary infections. It's probably worth looking up some pictures of what calciphylaxis looks like because this could definitely be a question in the exam or a spot question. In regards to the effects on the heart, you can have classic changes on the ECG associated with hypercalcemia. So this is a prolonged PR interval a shortened QT, a wide QRS, and also bradycardia. And these changes indicate pretty severe disease and require immediate treatment. Again, it'd be worth having a look at an ECG of hypercalcemia, another thing that would be fair game in the exam. So in terms of working up a patient who presents with hypercalcemia, there's been a number of previous questions about this. So in the long written exams in 1999, 2004 and 2008, they wanted you to discuss your investigations and work up for a patient presenting with high calcium. So I think in addition to proving it's probably going to be hyperparathyroidism because it's a general surgical exam, you need to show an understanding of excluding the other potential differential diagnoses for high calcium levels. So in terms of your history and exam, it's probably good to talk about the signs and symptoms of hypercalcemia that we just went through and also asking questions around the potential cause. So any signs and symptoms of malignancy, any signs and symptoms of an endocrine disorder, talking about the medications that they might be taking, as well as a family history, especially of that familial hypercalcemic hypocalcuria. The other thing to ask about is any previous neck surgery, previous head and neck radiotherapy, or a family history of endocrinopathies, which will all go into hyperparathyroidism risk factors. In terms of the workup, you're going to do some bloods and imaging, which is going to be guided by the results of your history and exam. 
And the aims of workup are to establish the underlying diagnosis as well as determine the severity of the hypercalcemia and whether you need to do anything about that urgently. And the three key tests, I guess, for determining the diagnosis for the cause of a high calcium are going to be number one, your PTH, number two, the PTH-related protein, and number three is the vitamin D levels. And there's a few good flow charts out there about how these three tests will factor into your decision-making. So in general, you have a patient who's got an increased serum calcium. You're going to take your history and do an exam, and they're going to have a look at what their PTH level is. If the PTH is increased or normal, then this is inappropriate for the fact that their calcium level is high. So that patient's going to go down the workup pathway for hyperparathyroidism, which we'll talk about later. If the patient has a low PTH, then it's going to be one of those other causes I mentioned. So you can measure their PTH-related protein. And if that's increased, then you have to be thinking about a malignancy and go looking for a malignancy. If that's normal, you can have a look at their um, vitamin D or their activated vitamin D level. And if that's increased, then you're going to look for lymphomas or granulomatous disease. And if it's not increased, then you're going to go looking for those other causes. So multiple myeloma by obtaining an SPEP level, and you can look for skeletal metastases or other endocrine disorders that can increase the calcium level. And finally, before we move on to talking about hyperparathyroidism, I just wanted to briefly mention the treatment for hypercalcemia, especially if it's because of any of these other causes. It's pretty rare that because of hyperparathyroidism, you would have a level that was so high to cause severe disease. So if a patient has mild hypercalcemia, you just want to avoid risk factors, hydrate the patient orally and determine and treat the underlying cause of the hypercalcemia. If they have moderate hypercalcemia, you want to rehydrate that patient with normal saline. You may consider bisphosphonates and also determine and treat the underlying cause. If patients have really severe hypercalcemia, then they need significant resuscitation to increase the renal excretion of calcium They need efforts to reduce reabsorption of calcium from the various sites and also urgent assessment and treatment of the underlying cause. So in terms of hydration, the normal saline that you give them can restore euvolemia and patients who have severe hypercalcemia can have nausea, vomiting and polyuria so they can become really dehydrated. And you want to aim for quite a high urine output, so even up to 200 or 300 mils an hour in severe cases to encourage excretion of calcium by the kidneys. After you have rehydrated the patient, you then give them a loop diuretic, which works to decrease the reabsorption of calcium in the loop of Henle. And so that's useful to excrete calcium. You can also give bisphosphonates, which will inhibit the bone reabsorption of calcium. And this is good for patients who have underlying malignancy as it inhibits the osteoclastic activity, which leads to calcium reabsorption. 
Patients can also be given calcitonin intramuscularly, um, which inhibits reabsorption and increases excretion, but they can get a rebound effect with this drug after 24 to 48 hours. Steroids can also be used, especially in hematological malignancies, patients with overly high vitamin D levels or granulomatous disease because this inhibits the 1-alpha hydroxylase activity, so reduces the activation of vitamin D. And in patients with refractory disease, underlying renal failure or heart failure, they may need dialysis. The other option is something like a calcimimetic. So there's a drug called Sinacalcit, which can be given for severe primary hyperparathyroidism or parathyroid cancers. And basically, it's called a calcimimetic because it mimics calcium but isn't actually calcium. So it goes and works on that feedback loop to reduce PTH secretion and reduce calcium levels. And then general things are like stopping drugs that might increase calcium, so thiazides, vitamin D, and calcium supplements restrict calcium intake in food, correct other electrolyte abnormalities like magnesium, potassium, and phosphate, and also encourage mobilization so that the calcium is being deposited in the bones. Okay, so let's move on to what we're actually all here for, which is talking about hyperparathyroidism. Hyperparathyroidism is one of the most common causes of hypercalcemia, and it is autonomous production of parathyroid hormone by one or more parathyroid glands. And the diagnosis is purely a biochemical diagnosis. There's three different types or categories of hyperparathyroidism. There's primary, secondary, and tertiary hyperparathyroidism. Primary hyperparathyroidism is where one or more parathyroid glands are making too much parathyroid hormone. And about 85% of cases, there's a single parathyroid adenoma, but in the rest of those cases, there can be two or more glands involved. Secondary hyperparathyroidism is due to the physiologic secretion of parathyroid hormone by parathyroid glands in response to hypocalcemia. And this is most commonly seen in chronic renal failure and also in vitamin D deficiency. So this is where the parathyroid is chronically stimulated to make parathyroid hormone. So in chronic renal failure, there's high phosphate levels and decreased renal conversion of 25-hydroxycholecalciferol to 125-dihydroxycholecalciferol or activated vitamin D, calcitriol, which leads to reduced intestinal calcium absorption and leads to hypocalcemia, which then has a feedback mechanism to stimulate parathyroid release. And a similar mechanism happens with vitamin D deficiency, where you're not getting absorption of calcium from the GIT, and this leads to a chronic feedback onto the parathyroids to make more parathyroid hormone to try to increase absorption of calcium. And this chronic stimulation can lead to hyperplasia of all of the parathyroid glands. And usually there's a low or normal calcium, but a high PTH level. And the last group is tertiary hyperparathyroidism. And this is an advanced form of secondary hyperparathyroidism that occurs in long-standing chronic renal failure, 
where after a while you get persistent autonomous secretion of parathyroid hormone. And this happens even after you've had a kidney transplant. So the parathyroids are chronically stimulated and keep making parathyroid hormone. And these patients will have an elevated serum calcium and high PTH levels as well. For secondary hyperparathyroidism, the treatment is to treat the underlying cause. So if they're vitamin D deficient, you give them vitamin D replacement. And if they have chronic renal failure, then they need a renal transplant. For tertiary hyperparathyroidism, these patients need a subtotal parathyroidectomy to remove the majority of the overactive parathyroid glands. And this is a hyperplastic process. There's not going to be a single adenoma in this diagnosis. So you will need to do a four-gland exploration, which we'll talk about later. So now that we've talked about secondary and tertiary, let's just ignore them for a while and talk about primary hyperparathyroidism. So the risk factors for primary hyperparathyroidism, the main ones, are neck radiation and genetic conditions. So MEN1 is a condition where there's a mutation in the menin gene on chromosome 11, and this leads to a constellation of endocrine disorders, including parathyroid hyperplasia, as well as pancreatic neuroendocrine tumors and pituitary adenomas. MEN2A is a genetic condition where there is a mutation in the RET proto-oncogene, and this leads to, again, a number of endocrine disorders, which include primary hyperparathyroidism, as well as medullary thyroid cancer and pheochromocytomas. The causes of primary hyperparathyroidism include a single adenoma, which has increased production of PTH, hyperplasia, which is about 15% of patients. And this is where all parathyroid glands are equally abnormal. And the familial types of hyperparathyroidism are more likely to be hyperplasia-related than adenomas. And then carcinoma is super rare, but you can get parathyroid carcinoma. And this is a malignant tumor of the parathyroid parenchymal cells. And in this condition, you can get very, very high parathyroid hormone, like much higher than you would usually see, as well as a mass in the neck, which would be the two reasons you would think that maybe this is a parathyroid carcinoma. So I've alluded to this a couple of times, but the workup of primary hyperparathyroidism includes a pretty standard set of blood tests, as well as some imaging to assess for complications, as well as to try to localize the cause of the problem. So in the exam, the blood tests I'm going to say that I will do include a parathyroid hormone level, calcium level, electrolytes, including magnesium and phosphate looking at their renal function, so getting a urea electrolyte creatinine to look at their EGFR, measuring their vitamin D to rule out secondary hyperparathyroidism, as well as getting a 24-hour urine collection to determine if they have familial hypocalceric hypercalcemia. As I mentioned earlier, primary hyperparathyroidism is a biochemical diagnosis, 
So you have to have a patient with elevated parathyroid hormone and a high or an inappropriately normal level of calcium. And then also ruling out those other causes of hypercalcemia with the other tests is important to make sure you're left with the diagnosis of primary hyperparathyroidism. In terms of imaging, I'm going to do some imaging to look for complications of hypercalcemia and primary hyperparathyroidism. So this includes a DEXA scan looking at their bone density because they can get osteoporosis and also getting an ultrasound of the renal tract to look for renal stones or nephrocalcinosis. The other imaging I'm going to do are scans to try to localize a single adenoma or localize the causative gland. These scans really are trying to see if there is a single adenoma so that you could potentially target this with your surgical approach rather than needing to do a foregland exploration. And the different types of imaging we have to try to localize a parathyroid adenoma are a neck ultrasound, a Sestamibi scan, and a 4D CT scan. In terms of ultrasound, this is also handy to look at the thyroid because you want to rule out an incidental uh, thyroid malignancy or thyroid nodule that may need investigation and dealing with at the same time that you do your neck surgery. In addition, you're going to try to look for a parathyroid adenoma. And on ultrasound, you're going to see these posterior to the thyroid gland, and they're going to look hypoechoic. They should be enlarged, have a white hyperechoic rim, and often have increased vascularity with a solitary feeding vessel from a peripheral pedicle. Again, it's useful to look at some pictures of what a parathyroid adenoma looks like on ultrasound. The next scan I talked about is a Sestamibi scan. And this is basically a nuclear medicine scan that gives Sestamibi labeled technetium-99 or technetium-99 Sestamibi, which is taken up by both the thyroid and parathyroid tissue, but it's retained for longer in the oxophilic cells in the parathyroid gland. And so they take a series of pictures over several hours to see if there's a residual gland that's lighting up. The other thing they can do is they can do a technetium-99 protectinate scan, which is protectinate is only taken up by the thyroid, not taken up by the parathyroids. And then they basically um, subtract the image that they get of what the thyroid is off the image of the sestamibi so that you should just be left with a um, parathyroid on your imaging. I hope that sort of makes sense. Um, And they can do this as just a nuclear medicine scan with the sort of fuzzy gray and white pictures, or they can also do a Sestamibi SPECT, which is where they do a high-resolution Sestamibi scan and combine it with a low-dose CT scan. So you get a 3D representation of where the gland that's lighting up is actually located. And this can be quite helpful if you have an ectopic thyroid gland that can be found in multiple other locations. If you listen to the first episode about anatomy and embryology that we did a few weeks ago. The next scan that you can do is a 4D CT scan. 
And whether you do a Sestamibia or a 4D CT, I think depends on your institution. From what I understand, there's some places that will routinely do an ultrasound and a 4D CT, but at my institution, we would routinely do an ultrasound and a Sestamibia scan um, as the initial two tests because you want dual localization. So you want two different imaging modalities showing you where the potential adenoma is to increase the likelihood that you have found the right thing. So a 4D CT is basically a multi-phase CT scan. So they take um, thin slices through the neck and they do a non-contrast, an arterial, uh, venous and a delayed phase image. And a parathyroid adenoma should be hyper-enhancing on the arterial imaging and wash out on the venous imaging compared with the thyroid gland. The other thing that can be done in some centers that are very specialized is selective venous sampling, which is an invasive method to basically sample all of the veins around the neck to give you an idea about where the high levels of parathyroid hormone are coming from um, to help you localize where the gland might be and what side it might be on. Again, if you are really struggling to localize it or it's redo surgery, you can also consider an MRI scan, which can also be done to identify a large parathyroid in an ectopic location. For the exam, I'm just going to start with an ultrasound and a Sestamibi scan and go from there. Like if it's not showing up on both of those scans, I might also do a 4D CT. And if it's not localizing an adenoma at that point, I'd probably just be talking about a foregland exploration. So you've made your diagnosis of primary hyperparathyroidism. Who gets treatment with surgery? I feel like this is a little bit of an academic question because most of the endocrine surgeons I talk to say anybody with a diagnosis of primary hyperparathyroidism should have an operation to treat this problem because most patients are going to progress with their disease and not treating it there's not anyone that's going to have regression of their disease and surgery is the only option. The reason I ask this question is because there are some guidelines that talk about who to treat. Everyone would agree that if patients are symptomatic with any of the symptoms that I talked about earlier, that they should have an operation. If patients are asymptomatic, then the guidelines say, or I think they're American guidelines, say that patients who fit into the following categories should have a operation. So these are patients that are less than 50 years old, that have a serum calcium concentration that's 0.25 millimoles per litre or more above the upper limit of normal, patients who have impaired renal function, so an EGFR less than 60, Patients who have evidence of osteopenia or osteoporosis, so their bone mineral density needs to have a T-score of less than 2.5 and or a vertebral fracture. And patients who have nephrolithiasis or nephrocalcinosis diagnosed on imaging. 
This criteria is basically trying to identify patients who have asymptomatic disease who will progress to having symptomatic disease. So worsening hypercalcemia, hypercalcuria, bone disease, or nephrolithiasis. But like I said, most endocrine surgeons I talk to say if they have the diagnosis, they need an operation. Uh, But they may ask you that question in the exam, which is why I've brought it up. In terms of surgery, there's two main options. The first is a bilateral neck exploration or four-gland exploration. And the second is a minimally invasive parathyroidectomy. A bilateral neck or four-gland exploration is the gold standard for hyperparathyroidism. It involves direct visualization of all of the parathyroid glands with removal of macroscopically enlarged or abnormal parathyroid tissue. And the cure rates with this surgery are more than 95%. Doing a foregland exploration requires a thorough knowledge of the parathyroid embryology and anatomy, especially because parathyroid glands may be located in ectopic locations and can be very difficult to find. And the goal of the surgery is to identify all normal and abnormal parathyroid glands. You want to try to distinguish if there's disease involving a single gland or whether there's multi-gland disease. You want to resect any abnormal glands. And this can include needing a cervical thymectomy to remove supranumerary parathyroid glands or a parathyroid rest. And then... If you need to perform a subtotal parathyroidectomy, so removing three and a half glands, then you want to leave an adequate, well-vascularized, viable remnant in one location. And this may involve leaving half of a gland in situ if it's well-vascularized, or if it's been devascularized, you may need to re-implant this into typically the sternocleidomastoid muscle. They talk about leaving at least 30 grams of one parathyroid gland. And if you have a choice, then you want to try to leave a lower gland if you can, because it's located further away from the recurrent laryngeal nerve. So it may be easier to access and less risky to access if there's recurrent disease. And you should also mark it with a little suture or a clip to make it easier to find if you have to come back in the future. The other option is a minimally invasive parathyroidectomy, and this could only be undertaken if you have preoperatively localized a parathyroid adenoma with your imaging. It's really important to talk to patients about the fact that even if you see a parathyroid adenoma in that location and you remove it, there's only about an 80% chance that they will be cured with the minimally invasive operation because they still may have hyperplasia of the other glands and biochemically may not be cured with a minimally invasive operation. But some patients are happy to accept that risk. And basically, it's a targeted resection of the preoperatively localized gland and usually uses a small transverse cervical skin incision. The other thing that's good to know for the exam about a minimally invasive parathyroidectomy is that there is a possible option to do intraoperative parathyroid hormone monitoring or testing, where a sample of blood is sent to the lab 
after the parathyroid adenoma is removed to confirm that the parathyroid hormone has reduced and that you've likely fixed the problem. And if you haven't, then you might proceed to a foregland exploration. This is made possible because parathyroid hormone has a very short half-life of only approximately five minutes. So you can just wait five minutes after you've removed the adenoma and take a blood sample and see whether or not the PTH has dropped. This isn't routinely done in my institution because we don't have the blood testing machine in theatre and it takes quite a while to run the test in the pathology lab. So it's not really something that we use, but it's good to know it's an option and it might come up in the exam. Both techniques are effective. The safety profile of a focused excision is potentially superior to a bilateral neck exploration because you're not exploring both sides of the neck. So you're not putting both recurrent laryngeal nerves at risk and you may reduce the risk of permanent hypoparathyroidism. So to finish us off, I'm just going to spend a little bit of time talking about secondary and tertiary hyperparathyroidism. So as I mentioned earlier, secondary hyperparathyroidism can be due to vitamin D deficiency or renal failure. Ignoring vitamin D deficiency for a minute, let's just talk about renal failure as a cause of secondary hyperparathyroidism. The pathophysiology of secondary hyperparathyroidism is complex, and there's probably four different factors that contribute to this process. The first one is hypocalcemia. So as renal failure progresses, the reabsorption of urinary calcium is impaired, which leads to low calcium. There's also impaired vitamin D activation by the kidneys, which then limit the amount of calcium that can be absorbed from the gastrointestinal tract. There's hyperphosphatemia, which contributes to hypocalcemia by titrating the ionized calcium in the serum as calcium phosphate. And so this directly inhibits renal activation of 25-hydroxyvitamin D. And you also get parathyroid resistance to fibroblast growth factor 23. The management of secondary hyperparathyroidism depends on the cause. So as I mentioned, if there's vitamin D deficiency, then give them vitamin D replacement. If the cause is renal failure, there's two options. These are medical options and surgical options. In terms of medical treatment, you can give the patient activated vitamin D, so calcitonin, which is bypassing the requirement that the kidneys contribute to the activation of vitamin D, and this may help increase calcium absorption from the gastrointestinal tract and also can directly lower serum PTH levels um, by the increased calcium levels. This is contraindicated, though, if the serum phosphate or calcium levels are very high. You can also give calcium emetics, which I talked about earlier, which is a medication that activates the calcium sensing receptors. So this inhibits parathyroid hormone secretion. And the name of this drug that we have in Australia is Sinacalcet. And this is contraindicated if the calcium levels are low. If there is a high PTH level that persists for more than six months despite these medical interventions, then there's probably 
hyperplasia of the parathyroid glands and therefore you might need to consider surgical parathyroidectomy. If you catch the patient before they get persistent PTH secretion, then a transplant may fix the problem. But if they already have autonomous parathyroid hormone secretion, then the transplant isn't going to help with that and they still may need surgery. And there's some people that say that if they do have persistent high PTH levels, you should try to do the parathyroid surgery before the renal transplant because high calcium levels can impair the renal graft or renal transplant function. The other thing with renal failure is they often get high phosphate levels. And so you may need to give them phosphate binding medications. You may need to restrict their dietary phosphate intake and also use dialysis if they're in end stage renal failure to reduce their phosphate levels. In terms of surgical options, I've mentioned both of them. So obviously renal transplant will treat the renal failure. And if they don't have autonomous PTH secretion, then that may also fix the high parathyroid levels. But parathyroid surgery can also be indicated in secondary hyperparathyroidism. So if the medical therapies fail to control the serum PTH levels or there's persistent hypercalcemia or hyperphosphatemia, then that would be an indication for parathyroidectomy. If you get secondary hyperparathyroidism and then they become symptomatic, then this may also be an indication for parathyroidectomy. If patients have intractable bone turnover um, that leads to osteoporosis and pathological fractures, or if patients have calciphylaxis, so that necrosis of the skin due to calcium being deposited in the small vessels I talked about, then that's an indication for an emergency parathyroidectomy. And because this pathology is related to foregland hyperplasia, then these patients need a subtotal parathyroidectomy with a foregland exploration. And the aim of surgery is to remove the majority of the hyperplastic parathyroid tissue to improve their calcium homeostasis, but also to leave obviously some parathyroid tissue behind to prevent hypoparathyroidism. And the interesting thing with renal failure related hyperparathyroidism or secondary hyperparathyroidism is that these patients are much more likely to get a condition postoperatively called hungry bone syndrome than patients with primary hyperparathyroidism. So in my institution, we have quite a strict protocol for these patients actually going on calcium infusions postoperatively because this can be such a severe problem. So hungry bone syndrome is a condition which is associated with high bone turnover when you have, say, secondary hyperparathyroidism and when that trigger for the high bone turnover is suddenly removed. And so in this situation, the surgery reduces the parathyroid hormone levels, which reduces that trigger for the bone turnover. And then basically the bones suck up all of the calcium and uh, magnesium and phosphate. And these patients can become quite unwell with severe hypocalcemia, hypophosphatemia and hypomagnesemia, and they need supportive care, intravenous calcium and uh, magnesium replacement. And usually this is sufficient to treat the problem. 
briefly to talk about tertiary hyperparathyroidism. This is when you get that chronically stimulated parathyroid tissue that then starts to autonomously secrete the parathyroid hormone, even after the underlying problem has been removed, such as a patient having a renal transplant. And the treatment is medical and then also a subtotal parathyroidectomy. So the last thing I'm going to talk about today is post-operative hypocalcemia. This condition can happen after thyroid surgery and also after parathyroid surgery. And the likelihood of developing post-operative hypocalcemia depends on many things. So what was the surgery that was done and what was it for? What happened to the parathyroids intraoperatively? Were they left in situ, but it was a little bit unclear about their blood supply? Were they left in situ and looked really healthy? Were they removed and transplanted and how many were? And was intentionally just a small amount of parathyroid tissue left behind, such as in a foregland exploration? Patients who preoperatively had a very high parathyroid hormone and calcium levels are at higher risk, such as those renal transplant patients we were just talking about. Patients who have a low vitamin D preoperatively are at high risk, so you want to try to replace low vitamin D levels preoperatively. Patients who have preoperative bone disease and osteoporosis are at high risk, and patients with secondary and tertiary hyperparathyroidism are at high risk, like we mentioned. On the ward postoperatively, usually I would do a PTH level on calcium and have replacement already started for these patients if I was worried based on the intraoperative findings about their PTH or calcium levels. Signs of hypocalcemia include numbness and tingling in the distal extremities and around the mouth or on the tongue. And then there's two signs that we look for, the Chovstek sign, which is where you tap over the facial nerve and this should demonstrate a muscle contraction of the face. And Trousseau's sign, which is where you use a blood pressure cuff to inflate the blood pressure cuff above systolic pressure and you wait a few minutes and patients with hypocalcemia will develop carpopedal spasm. So they get flexion of the wrists and the fingers and abduction of the thumb. And in severe hypocalcemia, this can inhibit the um, action of muscles and also of the heart. So patients can get tetany, laryngospasm, arrhythmias, chest pain, and seizures. So as I've mentioned, postoperatively, you want to have a think about what is the likelihood that this patient is going to develop hypocalcemia based on what you've actually done surgically. If you've removed all of their glands and just transplanted one, you know that they're not going to have functioning parathyroid hormone until that new gland kicks in. And so you want to have that patient on full replacement. So full replacement is usually two caltrate TDS and two calcitriol, the activated vitamin D, BD. If a patient has probably functional parathyroids, but you're not really sure, then you might put them on a couple of caltrate BD and check what their levels are and titrate from there. 
Patients who have hypoparathyroidism and hypocalcemia postoperatively um, usually have a transient problem where you supplement the calcium and the calcitriol until the gland starts working again. And so there needs to be some sort of titration of the replacement postoperatively over the coming weeks, as well as monitoring of their calcium and vitamin D. If you have mild to moderate hypocalcemia, they might have some cramps or spasms um, or tingling around the mouth, then you give them the caltrate, as I've mentioned, and you also want to give them instructions about if the symptoms develop to take one to two tablets um, and then wait 30 minutes and then take another couple, wait 30 minutes and seek help if the symptoms don't go away. The maximum amount of calcium absorbed orally is about five tablets of caltrate, and so you have to give calcitriol if you're going to go above those doses to increase the ability of the gastrointestinal tract to absorb calcium. And if patients have severe hypocalcemia on the ward, they may need replacement intravenously. So this is typically with intravenous calcium gluconate, which is available in a sort of 10 mils at 10%, which is equivalent to 2.2 millimoles of calcium. And you'd start with a bolus of 20 mils in 100 mils of normal saline. And then you can also do an infusion and you need to do a blood test for their calcium levels every three to four hours. And they'll also need to be in a monitored bed to monitor for arrhythmias if you're needing this sort of treatment. And also note that extravasation of calcium gluconate causes severe tissue necrosis. You need to make sure you have a good drip so that this doesn't happen. That completes this episode on calcium and hyperparathyroidism. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Please remember to leave me a review, rate the podcast and subscribe. It makes it easier for others to find. And I do really enjoy reading all of your reviews. It's time to close up. Thanks for listening to First Incision. If you have any comments or feedback, send us a message at firstincisionpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram at First Incision. Happy studying!